This is Bug in Your Ear, Dispatches from the Surgical Infection Society. I'm Dr. Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon and surgical infection enthusiast. In each episode of this podcast, we meet members of this great society and hear about the groundbreaking work they're doing to improve care of our patients. Today, we're talking to Dr. Dante Ye. Dr. Dante Ye is a professor of surgery and trauma and acute care surgeon at Ryder Trauma Center Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, Florida. He did his residency training at Jackson Memorial Hospital and his surgical critical care and trauma surgery fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. In addition to trauma, emergency general surgery, and surgical critical care, Dr. Ye has clinical experience in advanced nutritional support and complex surgical reconstruction of gastrointestinal complications. He's authored nearly 150 peer-reviewed journal articles and multiple book chapters and editorials, and most importantly for our conversation today, he's the editor of an upcoming special issue of the Surgical Infection Society's journal, Surgical Infections, focused on practical statistics for surgeons. Dante, welcome to Bug in Your Ear. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to get into the, the topic at hand, which is damn lies and statistics to paraphrase Mark Twain, because I think that there's few things more true in, in the scientific literature than you've got to be careful about the math. But um, before we get into that, just maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how it is that you came to now being the editor of uh, a special issue of the, the journal talking about all things statistics. Well, I, I think if you had told me 10 years ago that I would be here helping to write and edit an entire issue on statistics, I probably would have called you crazy. And I think at that time, 10 years ago, I would have wanted to uh, stab my eyes out rather than, than take on this task. I think my experience is probably similar to many surgeons and medical trainees in the United States, where we have only a very cursory and introductory training on statistics and study design. And at, at the time, I when I was just finishing training, I would trying to be a very good academic surgeon. So I would read everything that I got my hands on and I would take it at face value. I would just assume that the investigators knew what they were doing, that their peer reviewers knew what they were doing and that the editors were the final quality check. And that if it made it into print in a reputable journal, then it must be ironclad. It must be airtight and, and true. And what I started to learn uh, just by, you know, sort of paying attention, reading letters to the editor, reading editorials, I started to realize that there's this whole world of nuance when it comes to designing studies, conducting studies, interpreting the results, and then torturing the, the data to make it show what you want it to show. And so I, I, I began to learn that, uh, that not everything is as it seems. And whether it's some weird personality quirk of mine, or whether this is true of all surgeons, but I, I really got fascinated by this field, and I sort of went down a very deep, dark rabbit hole. And here I am, ten years later. I, I can't claim to be an expert. Um, I have gotten an additional degree, which, which uh, a master's in health professions education, which required at least two courses in statistics. So I do have a little bit of knowledge, um, but most everything that I've learned has been through paying attention and learning from the mistakes of others, and also, let's say, committing quite a few of the same mistakes myself. So some of my early papers employ some of the things that I now, 10 years later, am admonishing against. So I'll be the first to say that I'm, I'm throwing stones in a glass house here. 
<laughs> but um, I, I think that if we're going to be evidence-informed surgeons and physicians, and if we're going to be trying to do the best for our patients, we really uh, should know not only the latest literature, but how to interpret the latest literature. And if we're going to be doing clinical trials, it is incumbent upon ourselves to really design and conduct the best study possible. I really feel as though I learned about statistics when I started reviewing, because then I, I sort of felt like the onus was on me to make sure that this was right. Because I think like you, I had sort of assumed, okay, by the time it like makes it into print, somebody else who's more into statistics has checked and made sure that this is okay, right? And so I remember vividly uh, as a resident, you know, reading a paper and being like, okay, well, the, the P is less than 0.05. So clearly this is both correct and relevant and important, right? Yeah. And even as, you know, I remember being in the lab and saying like, you know, our p-value is 0.051. We'll just do a couple more experiments and then then everything we've been working on will will have merit. <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, one thing that it's a sad commentary on our current state that we're all sort of devoted slavishly to this cult of the p-value less than 0.5. And I hope that by reading some of the articles in this special issue that uh, the reader will will come to a you know understand its intention and the fact that it really does not reflect clinical relevance or significance some of the time tell me a little bit about how this special issue of surgical infections came to be because i think it really speaks in a way to what the surgical infection society does which is far broader than just talk about surgical infections right it it is the gathering place for surgical nerds. And I say that in the absolute most positive way possible, because it is, it is among the societies that I belong to, the one where I feel the most at home. And I think it's because it's thinking about things like this, um, you know, like looking at the underpinnings of surgical investigation in a way that, that other societies I haven't seen do. So I've been a member of the SIS program committee for several years. And, you know, we're, uh, always brainstorming to see what sort of interesting plenary sessions we can offer the, att the meeting attendees. Uh, you, you know, you got to mix it up. It can't all just be about antibiotic stewardship. <laughs> um, so I, I sort of came up with this idea. And I, I don't want to say it came solely from me, but our committee came up with this idea. Let's have a session where we sort of um, explain some of the nuances. What's the difference between an observational study versus a chart review? All right, what about a superiority study versus a non-inferiority study? And, and let's also have a, a kind of a, a funny section where we say, oh, here's how you lie. Here, here's how you can twist data and, and make it look more dramatic. And it's not that we're encouraging, we're not advocating for that, but we're just saying, this is what it looks like when somebody else is doing it. So the original idea was for it to be like a 90-minute plenary session. And it quickly became obvious that we had more great ideas than would fit in, in a 90-minute session. Then we, we thought, well, where could we share this sort of wealth of knowledge? And it just came naturally that, well, let, let's talk to the editor of our, our society's journal, Surgical Infections. So, so Don Fry was, was really supportive of the idea. He gave me the honor and the Herculean task of, uh, of assembling the team of authors and to pull it all together. Tell me a little bit about the issue and what it is that each of these articles is trying to provide a, I think, really enduring resource for. 
The special theme issue has 10 articles, including the introduction, so nine original pieces, and it's divided into roughly three sections. The first section is a trio of articles entitled Basic Introduction to Statistics in Medicine, Part 1, Describing Data, Part 2, Comparing Data, and Advanced Statistics. And, and this is really meant as a brief refresher course for, uh, I'm sure all of us had that one or two hours in medical school where they went over this uh, mean, median, mode, what's the difference, what type of data is there, uh, categorical versus continuous. Uh, we, we provide real world examples. And, and I think one of the real strengths of these articles is that the authors were able to make it as math-free as possible. And that, that's what I really want to emphasize, that, that if you're a little bit apprehensive about reading about statistics, I can, I can assure you that, that every single paragraph in this entire um, issue has been combed over to remove the math, so, in, unless it is absolutely necessary. I'll just give an example. Uh, if you're using the wrong type of summary statistic, something like hospital length of stay, it's almost always affected by extreme outliers. You got 99 appendectomies who go home the next day, but then you got that one person that stays a month. If you're comparing means or averages between two populations and one of them has an extreme outlier, then it's going to skew your mean way to the right and it's going to look really bad. Whereas the median, it would be the more appropriate metric for a skewed distribution and, and they would basically look essentially identical. That's one thing where I, I very commonly see people making the mistake of something you like ICU length of stay, ventilator days, or hospital length of stay. There's always going to be a few outliers there. The second section is really exciting because it looks to the future and it describes Bayesian statistics, machine learning and artificial intelligence, and then implementation science. And so these are three relatively new phenomena in the field of uh, medicine. At least they're getting relatively new attention and basically looks to the future. And then the third section focuses really on clinical studies. All right, the first one is entitled Study Designs in Clinical Research, which really goes into detail and, and, and helps distinguish the nuanced differences between the various study designs. And the final one is called Pitfalls in Study Interpretation. And this, this article sort of um, gives some examples of where you can go wrong in either uh, interpreting or designing studies. That makes so much sense. And I think it's so valuable to revisit this because like you said, like in medical school, you get one or two hours, but you've like, you've never seen a patient stay a month with an appendectomy, right? So like, you don't know what questions to ask. You can't relate the statistics to your own personal experience. And in my experience, you know, revisiting statistics has been so valuable now that I have some clinical experience to sort of correlate it to, which is why I'm super excited to read this issue. Talk about a little bit maybe about some of the pitfalls that you've seen and that maybe reading this issue will help us to avoid both in the work that we do in how we critically appraise other people's work. I think one very, very common mistake that I see people make all the time is they will interpret a underpowered quote-unquote negative study to mean no benefit. And, and I, I, I don't want to call anyone out on this. It happens very, very often. There have actually been bibliometric studies looking at how often this happens, not only in medicine, but also in surgery. And it is very, very common. So one thing that we 
are all guilty of is manipulating sample sizes such that it'll be easier to enroll uh, than the required number of patients. The downfall is, though, that you have to pay the piper later. So if you, if you manipulate your numbers and say, well, I'm just going to look for an effect size of 50%, that way I only have to um, enroll 80 patients instead of 8,000 patients, right? So you enroll your 80 patients, you may get a effect size of 40%, which is huge. But you couldn't detect it because you set up, you set your threshold at 50%. So your p-value is going to be greater than 0.05. You're going to say, oh, it was not significant. Therefore, the treatments are equivalent. And, and we know clinically that that's not the case, but just that the way that you designed your study, you know, uh, was wrong. And then the way that you report it, and there's this concept called spin, the, the way that you've spun the, the, the wording and, and you say, well, there's no difference. Really, what you should be saying is we couldn't detect a difference. And the reader should not come away from that thinking, oh, well, one is good, just as good as the other. Uh, what they should come across is that this study didn't really answer the question. An example that I give all the time to my trauma fellows is let's say that we have two patients coming in exactly at the same time with a gunshot wound to the abdomen. And both of them are hypotensive with a blood pressure of 70 over 40 and a heart rate of 150. And you're going to randomize one to go to the operating room for a laparotomy. And you're going to randomize the other one to be discharged home and follow up in GSW clinic, right? The one in the, that goes to the OR survives. The one that goes home uh, dies. And let's say let's do some statistics on this N of 2. And, and your p-value is going to be greater than 0.05. Are you then going to conclude that they are no different? That, that there's really no difference between the, the two treatments. So keep that example in mind when you're interpreting any study that says, well, there was no difference. It's a negative study. Yeah, it's a, it reminds me of like that great study that I often quote to my medical students, the parachute study, where they looked at reported uh, survival from jumping out of a plane without a parachute and showed that, you know, statistically, based on uh, the reports of survival, like, it, it's actually quite safe to jump out of a plane without a parachute, right? But of course, it's because those are the ones that get written up. Yeah. I actually um, ran across a study where they did uh, randomize people to jump from a plane with or without a parachute. And here's another thing that I learned from reading that study is that you can't just read the abstract, right? You got to look into the methods. You got to scrutinize the methods and see. And, and what they did was they recruited volunteers to jump off of the wing of a plane that was six feet off of the ground onto a little mattress pad there. You can't just read the conclusion of the abstract. You got to see, well, what patients did they enroll? Are they reflective of your patients or, or are they some totally crazy different population? And what was the treatment intervention? How far did they have to fall <laughs> um, before deploying the parachute or not? And, you know, were they healthy? Were they diseased? Did they have surgery? Like there's so many nuances to, to deciding whether or not to apply a particular published study to your practice. And, and that's something that I try to teach my fellows every week in Journal Club is to scratch beneath the abstract and really scrutinize the methods. I had been told that before. Um, I, I went on this whole odyssey and I didn't really appreciate the truth of that recommendation until now. So now the first thing I do when a new study comes out in the New England Journal or JAMA or JAX or whatever, the first thing I will do is flip to the methods and see if what they did make sense, if it has any external or internal validity. 
And if it didn't, then you're wasting your time reading the rest of the article. Just move on to the next. Can you talk a little bit about Bayesian statistics? Because I feel like that comes up a lot now. And I've tried to incorporate what I sort of interpret to be Bayesian principles in my own work, which is to say sort of taking into account you know, the pretest probability of things when I'm ordering tests or thinking about interventions. But obviously, there's much more to it than that. And I look forward to reading the full chapter. But can you kind of give give a quick summary of how we should be thinking about Bayesian statistics in our practice? Sure, I'll, I'll do my best. I, I'm not a card-carrying statistician, but here's my understanding of Bayesian statistics and Bayes theorem. And, and basically, as I understand it, this type of statistics takes into account what we call the pretest probability, also known as the prior. And then it integrates the information that we learn from conducting the study itself. And then it, it lumps it together with the previous evidence. And then it comes out with a post-test or a posterior probability. I really like this because it's more in line with how we actually practice in medicine. And the way that I try to visualize it is, let's say you get a call from the emergency department for a consult. And at first it's abdominal pain. Okay. So, you know, it could be anything. Then you hear, oh, it's right lower quadrant abdominal pain. All right. Okay. Okay. Now, now I'm starting to take shape in my mind. And as the consultant on the phone starts to say, oh yeah, I had some nausea, vomiting for a day, migrated to the right lower quadrant, you know, has anorexia. As more information becomes available, we start to crystallize in our mind. We start to have a stronger and stronger prior probability of what this could be, in this case, appendicitis, right? So by the time I take that patient to the operating room and I have, all, I have a white count, I have a CAT scan, I have a CT scan that shows right lower quadrant stranding and whatever. So by the time I make it to my intervention, I have a pretty high you know, prior about what I think is going on, I do the thing, I take the appendix out, and then, oh, man, that was really inflamed. Okay, well, I'm going to add that to my, you know, information uh, bundle. And now I've got a posterior that's really, really, you know, um, uh, consistent with appendicitis. Like that is how we sort of practice medicine. We don't we don't pick some arbitrary threshold like, okay, well, if, you know, the the likelihood of this occurring by chance, you know, is less than one in 20, then I think that it's this way or not. The way that Bayesian studies are reported is also much more informative. You say, well, I'm going to take a very skeptical approach. I'm going to take a really skeptical stance to whether or not, let's say, ECMO works in ARDS. And so, you know, the, the evidence has to be really strong to convince me because I'm skeptical. And then using that prior skeptical assumption, we analyze the data using Bayesian statistics. And then we come out with a phrase or a statement that says, Based on the results of this study and your skeptical prior stance, there is a greater than 80% probability that this treatment provides benefit to your patient. Okay, I, I think that that's a far more informative way to approach the results of a study rather than say, well, we selected mortality as an endpoint and the p-value is 0 0.06, uh, you know, in, in terms of the difference in mortality between the ECMO group and the standard of care group, 
right? The, the, the and therefore, there's no difference, right? Right, right, exactly. Because, because it's only a 94% chance instead of a 95% chance that these things occurred, you know, non-randomly. Exactly, exactly. So I, I'm not saying that Bayesian statistics should completely replace null hypothesis significance testing or frequentist uh, statistics, as it's called. I'm not saying at all that we should replace it. I think they're complementary and that, that all, you know, future studies should sort of take this uh, a Bayesian stance as well in order to provide a different perspective. And in my opinion, a more clinically useful perspective on study uh, results. Can we dig in a little bit? Because I know, I think I see this more than anything else. The notion of the p-value and what I've seen in a lot of papers that I've reviewed and, and reviewed negatively is this, what I think is kind of referred to as p-hacking, right? You sort of look for the things that have a p-value of 0.05 or less, and then you you cone in on those things, right? But like one of my mentors used to say, well, you know, if the idea of p-hacking, right, is that there's a no more than one in 20 chance that this is occurring by chance, right? So if you look at 20 variables, then you've got a pretty good chance that at least one of them is going to give you a p-value of less than 0.05, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And the phenomenon you're describing is multiple comparisons, right? It's it's multiplicity and it's, it's, it's a real problem um, because the p-value, as I understand it, is the possibility that the results that you have obtained or more extreme have occurred purely by chance. And it's kind of a circuitous way of saying, what's the surprise factor? Like how, how surprising is this? But, but it's also, you know, dependent on the assumptions of your model, right? So, so within the framework that you've created uh, and, and the assumptions that come along with that framework, what is the likelihood that this could have ar- arisen purely by chance? And, you know, we talk about uh, type one and type two errors and, and, you know, with the multiplicity comparisons, if you do 20 or even far less than 20, if you do like 10 or five, you know, uh, comparisons uh, looking at the same thing by chance alone, at least one of those are going to, to show up. And the problem is, is when we give it undue prominence. Okay, and we don't disclose in advance. Okay, well, we did these 100 tests, and out of them, two, the p value was less than five. There, there's a cartoon that we had wanted to include in this article where it was a series of um, stick figures, like it was like a cartoon, and they were looking at colors of MMs and it said, brown MMs uh, related cancer? No. Green MMs? No. Red MMs? Yeah. And it goes through a whole, and then after 19 variations, is like, you know, blue M&Ms are, you know, p-value less than 0.5 linked to cancer. And then there's like a, a newspaper headline, blue M&Ms linked to cancer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the pitfall that, that we have to avoid is to give undue prominence to p-hacking, you know, when it's post hoc uh, and, and it's sort of just dredging through the data looking for values less than 0.05. Right. Or like something that is statistically significant, but like clinically insignificant, right? I see this a lot in the work that I've done where we're, we're looking at big data. So, you know, you got 5 million hospital records, right? And you will, any test you do will give you a significant p-value. But if it's like length of stay and the difference is 
20 minutes between these two groups. Like, it doesn't matter, even if it's statistically significant. Right. Or, or a systolic blood pressure difference of like two millimeters of mercury. Someone once told me, if your sample size is too small, nothing is significant. And if your sample size is too large, everything is significant. Um, and that, that's the problem when we confuse the statistical significance with clinical relevance. So important. I, mean, I, I just cannot wait to read the full issue of this journal, which I think may be the first time I've ever said that about an issue, a full <laughs> issue of a journal. I mean, such a practical thing to just say like, wait, you know, do we really know what we're even talking about? And, and I think so important to just acknowledge that, I mean, you're a professor of surgery, right? Mm-hmm. And for, for you to be able to say, I don't understand everything about statistics, I think is really important and valuable because so often I think people in positions of authority, you know, are sort of assumed by those beneath them to know everything about these things and, and they're so reluctant to sort of admit that they don't know that um, all sorts of errors get propagated through the system, through that sort of hubris. So it's, I think it's amazing both that you've done this and, you know, just the fact that it, it exists and is a resource, but also just the sort of inward looking, um, introspection on your part to to create something that sort of says, I, I actually didn't know this, even though I'm a, you know, professor. I think you will probably won't have a hard time finding surgeons admitting that they don't understand the statistics. I, I think that's one thing where, where you can easily call somebody out on that and find out if, if they really know what they're talking about or not. But um, I have noticed, and, and I don't think that this is a, a subtle thing, but the quality of statistical tests and reporting has gone up dramatically within medicine in general, but also surgical research in the past 10 to 20 years. It's almost like an arms race now, where I I really do believe that every study should at least receive a cursory, you know, review by a statistician before you submit it to to, for publication. And I think I I really like the the leadership that the journal Trauma has taken, where they have an in-house statistician that that helps review, you know, all of this. And and so for me, some of the inspiration or, or motivation for, for learning more about this is from some scathing reviews that I've received in the past from in-house statisticians that say, hey, listen, this this is unacceptable. You need to you need to step up your game. And then I say, I look at it, oh my gosh, I have no idea what this is. I, I better learn about this and then contact our in-house, our our you know university card-carrying PhD statisticians because although we can familiarize ourselves with some basics and you know, the, the data compare like uh, straight up univariate uh, comparisons or very simple logistic regressions. Anything more complicated than that, I think, really deserves a card carrying statistician these days. Yeah. I mean, much as like a friend or relative comes to me and asks what I think about their antihypertensive regimen, right? I'll recognize if it's wildly crazy, right? If they come to me and they're like, I've got high blood pressure, I've been treating it with salt tablets, right? I can say, like, okay. <laughs> I think that might not be right, you know, but I would never presume to say like, oh, I think that your dose of lisinopril could be a little higher, right? I, I, there are experts for that. Yeah. Well, also look at look at it this way. I mean, um, statistics is its own field and they have their own PhDs and whole careers. So what would we as surgeons say 
if a statistician came to me and said, hey, you know, I've been dabbling in surgery. I looked at some videos on YouTube. Like, I, I, I think I know how to do a, a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. So I don't need your help. I'm just going to do it myself because I taught myself. Right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because, you know, I had an hour or two of uh, surgery at statistics school, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's so valuable. And, and the times that I've worked with statisticians, you know, I've often gone in thinking like, I got this, you know, and they point out a hundred ways that I am wrong. But at least I, I think, you know, with this sort of resource that this issue will provide, I, I, I think I will be able to go in and maybe have, you know, only 50 things that the statisticians can like point at. Yeah. One, one thing that is, is really important is to recognize what you don't know, right? There's the things that you know, that you know, there's the things that you know, that you don't know, but the real challenge is to the, that we oftentimes don't know what we don't know. <laughs> right. The unknown unknowns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the uh, there in, in in education school, it, it, we call it unskilled and unaware, and that's the most dangerous person. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that this is such great work, and I mean, congratulations to you and to all the authors and editors on uh, what I think is going to be uh, like many of the things that the Surgical Infection Society does, like a, a a very valuable resource for our membership, but also an invaluable resource, not just for people who are interested in surgical infections and, and the academic work of the Surgical Infection Society, but just people who are out there trying to interpret literature in any discipline. I think this is incredibly valuable. So thank you. And I cannot wait to read it. Well, I, I have to say, um, I had a really great time putting together this issue. And a lot of it is because a lot of the co-authors are my friends and colleagues within the Surgical Infection Society. And the camaraderie that, that we experience and the friendship is truly unique when it comes to surgical societies in general. I think the society is small enough that we pretty much know most of the people at, at the meetings in, in person when we see each other. And I've developed some really great lifelong you know, friendships. And I've brought in people that I think would fit in well uh, with the group. Now, I mean, the society is open to everybody, but it does have a, a certain culture and a different flavor to it that's distinct from some of the other organizations that I'm a member of. And when I reached out to my friends and, and colleagues to, to help write this, it was uh, an outpouring of support and without a hesitation. And it was really impressive to see how much expertise lay uh, you know, machine learning and, and implementation science and, you know, all this other great stuff that people were, um, you know, had this untapped knowledge that, that, uh, that it was just willing, waiting to be poured out onto the page. Yeah. When I, I think about the surgery society meetings, I, the surgical infection society was the only meeting I can think of where I went and I saw like all the people who I had sort of learn to admire or who are sort of my heroes or mentors or, or just people who, whose work I had been following. Like I, I went to this meeting really blind because John Alverdi had just invited me to come. And, uh, and I looked around, I was like, wait, all the cool people are here. Like, and they're all like willing to talk to me. And I was like a medical student, you know, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, this is where they all go to hang out together, right? All my heroes. It's, it's so cool. Yeah, I actually was, um, I was invited to to come to the meeting by Rob Sawyer. Uh, he and I were seated at a table at a wedding of uh, he, there was uh, a guy who was my former fellow, 
uh, my former ICU fellow when I was up in Boston, and he had and, and Kareem had chained under uh, Rob in residency, so he thought, you know, rightly so that that we would get along well together. So he sat us at the same table at his wedding, and I we started chatting, and and Rob he was president at the time of the SIS. So he invited me to come to the meeting. I said, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll come check it out. And and I've gone to every meeting since. I and mean, that's just a perfect story about like how so many great things happen in our field. Those chance meetings or semi-planned encounters between people that uh, lead to such great collaborations. And I think this is a perfect example of that. So thank you again. And um, we will have a link to this issue in the show notes. I encourage everyone to go and check it out and to read it both for the statistics and for a, you know, a great example of what the Surgical Infection Society can do. Great. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining this conversation with the Surgical Infection Society. This episode of Bug in Your Ear was produced by me, Jonathan Kohler. Production assistance from Heather Evans, Lynn Heido, and Diane Catalano. This episode was mixed and edited by Orlando Magana, who also composed the theme music. If you like what you heard, please rate and review this podcast so others can find it. And consider joining the Surgical Infection Society, truly one of the great medical societies out there. We'll be back soon with more stories of the SIS.